A rented room in London, England, on a street no different from 10,000 other streets. A woman sits hunched against the wall, forlorn. In front of her, a machine. This crazy vintage gizmo made of wood and metal, wire and glass, spinning discs, red, blue, green. Glowing valves, electric lamps, dancing beams of colored light refracted through an intricate array of prisms, lenses, mirrors to make up a kind of grid, flickering softly in the air like ghostly neon. Rescuing Ravenstock. She has tears in her eyes, the woman sitting in the room. She's been waiting there, hour after hour, waiting there for days. Knows this can't go on forever. Knows it has to stop sometime. Hope has almost gone. Almost. That woman is me. And how did I wind up that way? Well, it all began when... Okay. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Ava Delman, and I guess you'd describe me as the quiet, geeky type. I design stuff. Greeting cards, posters, just about keeps the wolf from the door. Anyhow, a breakup had left me licking my wounds in Paris, France. The usual story. Looking for different things out of life. So, there I am, wandering along a boulevard, feeling surplus to requirements in the city of romance when I get a call from an old art college pal. George. George is what's known as comfortably off. Inherited an apartment in Hempstead, London. Now, I happen to have helped George through a tough time. Back in our student days, before he'd connected with Matthew, his soulmate. And George always seemed to feel he owed me one. He didn't. I was just being a friend. Ava, how are you? Heard the news, and uh, I'm truly sorry. Thanks, George. You're looking well. Oh, that's just an app. The AI does a Dorian Gray on you. Make sure you always look pristine on screen. In reality, I'm crumbling. <laughs> if so, then with great elegance, like a Tuscan villa. <laughs> You're too kind. And how's Matthew? Matt's good. Sends his regards. Anyway, Eva, we were wondering whether you'd be up for a spot of apartment sitting, what are the plans, and so on. Matt and I are off to save you very shortly, be there about a month, helping out with a big art project. Also, I thought, things being as they are, you might appreciate a change of scene. We're close to Hempstead Heath. I know you couldn't live without your regular nature fix. And that's how I wound up in London, minding George's apartment. I'd fallen in love with the place at first sight, as soon as George sent over the pictures. He joked about how I'd feel like I'd gotten a job as a museum curator. George being something of a retro nerd, a lot of space was given over to his collection of vintage electronics. Early TV sets, radios, heavy old tape recorders, plus this crazy, cobbled-together gizmo in the corner of the living room. Pure diesel punk. Three big metal discs punched full of spiraling holes with green and red and blue filters, little mirrors, lenses, prisms, an electric motor, 
lamps and valves and wires and other stuff I couldn't identify, along with an old-time microphone on a stand and a speaker in a rough wooden case. Anyhow, on my first night in the apartment, a couple of hours after I'd arrived, I got a call from George, and I asked him all about this work of electronic art. The Ravenstock Transopticator, built to transmit, receive, and project television images in three dimensions, with color and sound, circa 1934. Now that's what I call ahead of the curve. Named after its inventor, a young man called Paul Ravenstock. It'll switch on and generate a kind of virtual 3D screen, but that's about it. Although this in itself is something cool. Rumor has it that at some point it did work, after a fashion. Only one of its kind still in existence, apparently. Bought it from the widow of another collector. Would embarrass me to tell you what I paid. And as for our Mr. Ravenstock, well, I won't say anymore until you've popped over to the bookcase, second shelf down. The one entitled Television, The Birth of a Medium. Okay, George, I got it. Now turn to page 47 and read what it says at the top. Paul Ravenstock, 1907 to 1934. British inventor, television pioneer. In 1920s was briefly assistant to John Logie Baird. Was later working to perfect a television projection system in color and three dimensions. When he lost his life in an attempt to rescue a neighbor's child from a house fire... George... What are you showing me here? That's so sad. Yes, or rather poignant, particularly when you turn the page and look at the photo. So that's... wow. Handsome devil, isn't he? But can you see where he is? Looks like he's just about to climb up a a drain pipe? Seems a press photographer was on the scene when he made that special attempt. Oh my god, George, that's... isn't it? Sorry, Ava. Didn't mean to go all morbid on you. That appears to be the only photo we have. Very little information about him anywhere. Apparently, he's buried in Hampstead Cemetery. Oh my God. Might try to track down the grave at some point. Stick a few flowers on there. Pay my respects. Something about that story struck a chord. I couldn't get it out of my mind. Okay, I was seeking a distraction from stuff I didn't want to think about. Plus, pertinent, if shallow. Paul Ravenstock looked super cute with that wild hair and those big dark eyes. He'd lived such a short life and died so tragically. Maybe only minutes after that photograph was taken. It all added up to something haunting. So much so that I found myself hoping for even the tiniest scrap of information that went beyond what was in that musty old book. About all I could find was a short paragraph in a biography of the American inventor, Philo Farnsworth, who'd met him along with Baird on a visit to London. In a cheap rented room, Paul Ravenstock had demonstrated a device that threw three-dimensional images into the air, although they were distorted and unstable. During the demonstration, he collapsed from exhaustion. Turned out he'd been going without sleep for days to get the thing working and was so short of money he'd been surviving on apples from a neighbor's tree. That first night, before going to bed, I took a closer look at that Ravenstock transopicator. It seemed incredible that this contraption, all wood and wire and spinning discs, glass valves, lamps, and little mirrors, could ever do what he'd been aiming to do way back in 1934. Only after I'd been studying the thing for some time as an artwork did I see that it was hooked up to an electricity supply. 
Curious, impulsive, (laughs) that's me in two words. I found a power switch and flipped it to be greeted by nothing. No buzz or hum, no glowing valves, whirling discs, crackling Frankenstein energy dead as Paul Ravenstock himself. I wandered off to bed, more than a little disappointed. At first I thought I had to be dreaming. And when I'd verified that I was awake and that I really could hear what I thought I could hear, I put it down to thin walls and unsociable neighbors. Hey, I like vintage movies too, but here's a time and place. No way could I get back to sleep with that going on. I got out of bed with a mind to thump on the wall or stamp my foot on the floor or pretty much do whatever it took to get those people with the TV to pipe down. I was feeling a little spooked there on my own at night in an unfamiliar apartment. In the hallway stood a a little table with a heavy candlestick, a useful weapon if need be. I advanced toward the living room door, clutching the candlestick feeling pretty ridiculous. I eased open the door, light flickered on the wall, subtle pastel shades, turquoise, violet, coral, shifting constantly. As I pushed the door open wider, I finally saw what was going on. I stood there and shuddered, literally shuddered. It was life-size, standing in the middle of the room, reciting poetry. Little beams of dancing light from the Ravenstock Transopticator, sort of painting this 3D image in the air, shimmering, flickering, like some kind of primitive hologram. And then he broke up, vanished back into thin air, leaving only a grid pattern, faint bands of colored light lingering, fading. Paul Ravenstock, (laughs) right there in front of me, a a kind of electronic ghost. Wow. (laughs) Clever, George. Must have rigged it up somehow, used a bunch of hidden lasers or whatever, triggered the simulation with a timer. I examined the machine. He was running pretty smoothly. Whirring, humming. I'd forgotten to cut the power before going to bed. Didn't those early electronic gizmos take an age to get warmed up? Which prompted an alternative explanation. But that was beyond crazy. Pure anime fantasy. George's little joke, it had to be. High tech, elaborate. Still, it it took a long time to get back to sleep. Plus, I'd started feeling just a little indignant. I like to think I'm a good sport, but when you're tired from traveling and alone in someone else's apartment, well, that's not the kindest time for a friend to pull a stunt like that. So, how's it going? Sleep well, I hope. Pretty impressive, George. Gotta hand it to you. You really gave me goosebumps. Goosebumps? You know what I'm talking about. That cute hologram type thing in the lounge. Paul Ravenstock, 
large as life and in living Now color? You've lost me completely. George, it's come really, on! You're saying you saw the ghost of poor Ravenstock in the living room? How very odd. If that's not too weak a word. I'm really not sure what to say. If you're quite positive it wasn't a very vivid dream, then I can only suggest that this device boasts extraordinary capabilities that have gone undocumented. Or occult powers. On my return, I'll have it thoroughly checked out. Until then, I'd leave it unplugged if I were you. I couldn't blame George for doubting me. I knew it sounded nuts. Anyhow, I had another friend in London. Maria, we'd arranged to meet up at a cafe. Well, there has to be a sensible explanation. Rational. Right. Of course. Rational. A dream. Yep, yeah, th that's rational. But dull. Okay, Ava, let's think. What would be an irrational explanation? A good and interesting one. Let's say it weren't a dream, weren't a prank. Let's say it were the real thing. And what would that be exactly? How about the big wise universe is looking for a way to bring the two of you together? You and this Paul Ravenscroft. Ravenstock. Paul Ravenstock with an E on the end. Big wide universe? That's the Hallmark romance explanation, Why Maria. not? More things in heaven and earth? Well, didn't you describe him as cute? He is... well, was. He'd be like 120 or something by okay, now if he'd so lived. Okay, with the Hallmark romance scenario, where do we go from here? I'd say we pay a visit to his grave. Picture the scene. You brush aside a strand of ivy to reveal the name etched into the weathered stone. Which cemetery? Hampstead, according to George. How do we find it among all the other graves? Run around and around like Eli Wallet in my father's favourite movie? This Hallmark romance were led to it as if by magic. Want to put fate to the test? I'm not feeling the magic, Maria. Give it time. It was a pretty cool cemetery, as cemeteries go. We walked around, up and down, along paths under overhanging trees, but we didn't find what we were looking for. Maria was getting bored, paying almost all of her attention to her phone screen. And then, there it was. I stood and stared. Not one grave, but two. One small, one even smaller. The lettering was faded, but still legible. Paul Ravenstock, 1907-34. to Rest in peace. Edward Betts, 1933-34. to Safe in the arms of the Lord. Baby, too. So sad. And suddenly this poor Ravenstock appears right in front of you, late at night, reciting poetry. Out of that gizmo he invented. The Ravenstock Transopticator. Freaky. Kind of a ghost. With scan lines. Like an early TV image. Why do you always have to be so geeky, Ava? Let's just stick with ghosts. I guess it's just the way I'm made. I know what I saw. Paul Ravenstock was transmitting an image of himself across London to some people in Notting Hill. I did a little research. Those early signals traveled further than they thought. Oh, that's just a matter of distance. Those signals of yours would have had to travel through time. Which is why I'm still thinking it must be a prank. <laughs> Maybe George knows nothing about it. Then who would be behind it? I don't know, Maria. Not Matthew. Still uses a dumb phone. All I know is... Rational means a dream or a prank. Me? I prefer time travel and ghosts. Well, if you're still aching for that romantic angle, I can't believe we found the grave. Okay, confession time. Uh, I have a friend who has a friend who does guided tours. 
Hampstead, Highgate, Bloomsbury. Knows all these graveyards like the back of her hand. Sometimes you need to help along the magic, Ava. Just a little... Ava? Are you okay? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the cemetery was a bad idea. Sorry. We didn't talk about it anymore. We went and had dinner at a restaurant, and afterwards we went back to Maria's place. And Maria did her best to lift my mood. We shared a bottle of wine and put on music and sang along and danced and laughed and certain topics we steered well clear of, making damn sure our conversation passed the Bechtel test. I wound up staying the night, and by morning my encounter with Paul Ravenstock's electronic ghost felt ready to be filed away as just another of life's little mysteries. Maria had to leave early to catch a train. After seeing her off at the station, I got the underground back up to Hampstead Heath and went wandering far and wide. Parliament Hill, Kenwood House, Golders Hill Park, and then back across the heath and through Hampstead Village. By the time I reached George's apartment, it was late afternoon and I had a big bunch of photos. The sun was slanting in through the living room window and the glass valves on the Ravenstock transopticator had caught the light and were glowing and winking, bringing it eerily alive. I'd been making dutiful efforts all day not to think about its inventor, but nothing I'd photographed, from the fallen leaves and twisted trees to good examples of cozy English architecture, had gotten a hold on my imagination like that thing in the corner of the room, and before I knew it, I was reading more about early television experiments. Test transmissions were often done late at night, after the BBC's radio service had shut down for the day. My guess was that George had never left the gizmo switched on overnight, and so Paul Ravenstock had never showed up for George. Although, that still didn't explain why it would take a test transmission almost a century to materialize. Just some crazy freak of nature. Maybe. (laughs) I'm no scientist. Anyhow... I'd gotten this idea of creating a 1930s-style postcard featuring the Ravenstock Transopticator, an image you could maybe put on cards and mugs and t-shirts, whatever. When doodling around with designs, I tend to lose track of time, and it was late in the evening when I started getting hunger pangs. I showered, put on my bathrobe, fixed myself an avocado salad, and opened another of those cute little bottles of wine George had so thoughtfully left for me. Reviewing my work, I felt I could do better. Alas, the sun had long since gone down and those wonderful old glass valves were no longer working magic with the day's last rays. So I switched on the power and got the thing buzzing and humming and glowing. That grid of colored light. Sage, sapphire, turquoise, violet, lavender. Oh, I was only too aware that I was using art as an excuse. (laughs) It was getting close to midnight and I was getting obsessive. I opened a second bottle of wine and sat there ready to snatch up my phone and hit record the moment Paul Ravenstock appeared. But he never materialized. I sat there two whole hours and he was a no-show. I fell asleep in that chair in front of all that quaint 1930s technology, only for 21st century technology to administer a rude awakening. I'd gotten a text from an unwelcome source. And if you don't mind, 
will draw a discreet veil over that part of my life. I didn't respond. I deleted it and blocked the sender. I had nothing more to say to this person. In fact, I'd already blocked them, but they'd gotten around that by using a new number. The intrusion added a sour note to the proceedings. The prospect of spending the rest of my life alone was not a welcome one. Oh, I could go online and fish around, but I knew I'd be in for a long haul. Reversals, dead ends, disappointments, comes with the territory. Unless you get super lucky. I guess you can see where I'm going with this. Yep, I poured myself more wine and resumed my vigil in front of that gizmo. I'd been sitting there for some time, waiting in vain when suddenly it dawned on me that the Ravenstock transopticator was made to transmit as well as receive. And into my head came this ditzy notion that maybe I could send an image of myself into the past. I examined the controls. Just seemed a matter of flipping a little lever and moving that old-time microphone to where Paul Ravenstock's image had materialized. <laughs> I laughed at myself as I stood there in the center of the grid, breaking those light beams and turning all kinds of crazy colors as the thing registered my presence and clicked and whirled and I waved and said, Hey, hello there, 1930s people. My name is Ava Delman and I... At first, I thought I'd passed out on account of all that wine I'd gotten through. I felt woozy, with one hell of a headache, which kind of supported the alcohol theory. The last thing I could remember was being in George's apartment, but when I opened my eyes, I failed to recognize my surroundings. I was lying on a couch in a murky attic room. Someone was standing over me. In due course, the blur became a face. Weirdly familiar. Big, dark eyes full of concern and no scan lines. This was no television image. This was the real deal, folks. Are, are you... are you alright? I... think so. Combus Mentis, anyway. Thank heavens for that. Here, take a sip. Only water, I'm afraid. Thank you. I went out, just momentarily, came back, and there you were, lying on the floor. Do you mind telling me what you're doing here? Oh, just quietly growing crazy. You're an American? That a problem? No, not at all. Just deepens the mystery. Next you'll be telling me your name is Paul Ravenstock. Now look here, Miss, uh... Delman. Ava Delman. Please, if rather bewildered to meet you, Miss Delman. I am indeed Paul Ravenstock. Now, would you be so kind as to explain exactly how you came to be lying unconscious on the floor, barefoot, in a dressing gown in my Don't room? Don't you remember? You threw a wild party. This is no time for levity, Miss Delman. I, I find this utterly bizarre. You and me both. Has to be some kind of elaborate prank, right? On that much, at least we can agree. So you know my name. Presumably someone sent you here. And where is here? Hey, I, I like the 1934 calendar over there on the wall. 
cool touch and that that gizmo just like the one in George's apartment. Miss Delman, I, I'm afraid you're making very little sense. Let me guess. If I get up and look out the window, I'll see the London of 1934 spread out all around. What else would you expect to see? Okay. Let's try to be logical about this. Either I'm dreaming or you're dreaming. Although the latter would be super strange from my viewpoint, as my internal thought processes would have to be a part of your dream. Or else I somehow got pulled back through time from the 21st century, like in some cheesy Twilight Zone story. Twilight? After your time. Incidentally, does this look like 1930s hair? Not especially. But then I'm no great authority on feminine coiffure. And so I take it you're claiming to have arrived here from the future? Excuse me while I resort to Occam's razor in the form of finger and thumb. Ouch! Well, that would appear to rule out the most obvious explanation. Now I suggest you- Ow! Satisfied? For good measure, I made it pretty darn severe as pinches go. Likewise. And I really don't know. Could be I'm hooked up to virtual reality software, I volunteered for an experiment, had some editing done on my memory to facilitate immersion. My knowledge of medicine is shamefully slight, but it's plain even to the layman that such incoherence has This is what's welcome. known as weighing up the possibilities in a cool, rational manner. And speaking of possibilities, another is that you're playing the part of Paul Ravenstock. Who hired you? There's a coincidence. I was thinking the very same about you. Roger Pellbeam. Are you a friend of his? I could just about imagine Pellbeam concocting a charade along those lines, purely out of mischief. All right, congratulations. For one moment there, you had me come absurdly close to entertaining the possibility that your outlandish claim might not be entirely devoid of substance. Now I'm tired. Too tired for parlour games. You can tell Pellbeam it worked a treat. Now is there really any need to continue with the theatrics. So you think I've been hired by some guy called, uh, what was it, Pillbeam? To make believe I'm a time traveler? <sighs> oh, well, I guess I can't My blame you. My <laughs> assumption was that you'd wandered in. <sighs> Sleepwalking, perhaps? Either you bumped into the apparatus or curiosity led you to examine it. And you'd received an electric shock that rendered you unconscious. For one moment, I even feared you... when was the last time you slept? Two days. Consequently, I'm loath to rule out the possibility of hallucinations. So you still maintain you're a visitor from times to come. How exactly would you account for your arrival? I've been house-sitting. House-sitting. Is that a thing in 1930s? Uh, Minding an apartment. Or flat, I'd guess you call it. While the owner, my friend, George, is right there in front of me. Or rather, a flickery image of you projected by this thing. I was intrigued, being the nerdy, curious type. Nerdy? Academic, not science-averse, can have pejorative connotations, which I refute. Non-mainstream, granted. An acquired taste, maybe. (laughs) Excuse my defensive habit of preemptive self-deprecation. Anyhow, I wondered if the machine could still transmit as well as receive. I flipped the little lever and, well, here I am. Crazy, huh? Well, if that really is the case, then Mr. Baird will be impressed. John Logie Baird. Yes. My mentor, you might say. Extraordinary man. And then there's your fellow American, Farnsworth. 
Only had time for a brief conversation when he was over here, but learnt a great deal. Uh, and so you're prepared to swear that what you've told me is God's honest I truth. Guess the only way back is the way I got here, <laughs> through that gizmo. That, uh, gizmo, as you rather quaintly refer to it, wasn't constructed with the aim of sending a person through time. To claim that it's performed that fate would be to enter the realm of fantasy. Weird tales. You have um, a bathroom? Are you able to stand? Mm. Let's see. Need help getting up? No, 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 no. I'm cool. A little shaky on the legs, but... I'm afraid it's not much of a bathroom. Never mind, just show me the way. Sorry about that. How are you feeling now? When you look ashen? Nasty turn No easy there. way back, is there? Not simply a matter of reversing the polarity. Polarity? I'm afraid I don't Just see a common how... trope that won't make sense for several decades. Well, if you really do have nowhere else to go tonight, Miss Delman, I, I suggest you take the bet. At this stage, I'm quite unable to think clearly. I'll make do with the couch. Or, if you prefer, I'll have a word with Miss Cravat downstairs and see if she can put you up for the night. Although Mrs Cravat's bound to take a very dim view of all this, since I'm not supposed to be entertaining young ladies up here. And I dare say she'll remind me that I'm several weeks behind with the rent. I'm rather reluctant to approach her, but... It's your bed, Mr Ravenstock. I wouldn't want to deprive you of it. The couch will suit me just fine. No, no, Miss Delman. I insist. May not be the most comfortable of beds, but you'll be warmer there during the small hours. I can only assume that whoever put you up to this dropped you off in a motor car. Can't imagine you walked in off the street in nothing but a dressing gown. <laughs> nothing but a dressing gown, uh, Mr. Ravenstock. Lifting you up, um, uh, uh, f- from the floor, what one could hardly help but, well, notice an absence of. <clears throat> Now, if, if you don't mind, I suggest we address this whole matter afresh in the cold light of day. May I turn the lamp okay, off? Okay, sure. I lay there in that lumpy bed looking out at the moon through the gap between the curtains. Same old moon, at least. And curled up on the couch, Paul Ravenstock slept like a baby, while I wondered why I wasn't panicking. Screaming. I guess I didn't panic on account of not believing it was real. I couldn't explain what was going on in my head, but why not lean into it? Sit back and enjoy the ride. So, let me see, if this had been for real, how would I handle it? All I had was a bathrobe with empty pockets, plus plenty of scattered random items of knowledge about the future, which would get me locked up as a crazy woman if I mishandled things. I'd read my share of time travel stories, seen all those movies, TV shows. One wrong move and I could really screw things up for the whole future world. Unless, of course, this was all a part of what had brought about my world to begin with, like a circle type thing. All of this stuff was careening around and around in my head and maybe my mind blew a fuse and shut down on me because the next thing I know I'm opening my eyes and seeing sunshine flooding in. The room had looked almost cozy at night. Daylight told a different story. Peeling wallpaper, damp patches, 
strictly low rent. Paul Ravenstock was still fast asleep on the couch. I needed to use the bathroom again. I tiptoed past him and was on my way back when I heard a car pull up outside. As it seemed unwise to reveal my presence, I looked for somewhere to hide. Beside the bathroom was a narrow door. Guessing it was a closet, I opened the door and found I'd guessed right. All kinds of junk in there, but thankfully, just enough room for me to squeeze in. Although I couldn't close the door right up. Through the crack in the doorway, I watched and smiled as Paul Ravenstock suddenly stopped, turned back, looked at the empty bed with the rumpled bedclothes, strode over there, and felt under them, testing for warmth. He scratched his head and then resumed his journey to the door. Had he imagined me? About time, old man. Hello, Pilby. Thought we'd drop by, since I know you make a habit of burning the old midnight oil. Been at a party, stretched into the small hours. Fortescues. Dreadful, balls, but passable fodder and plentiful well, vino. That's a fact, Pilbeam. I was enjoying a decent night's sleep for the first time Wouldn't in... Wouldn't want to waste a glorious morning like this, would you now? Of course not. So aren't you going to invite us in? Paul. Hello, Margot. You do look awfully tired, Paul. And now I feel beastly listening to Roger when he suggested we pop in here on our way home. Nonsense, old girl. Ravenstock doesn't mind a friendly social call, do you, old sport? Not by to see that little prank of yours went down here, Pilby. Dreadfully right. sorry, old fellow, but this all is right, all tosh and uh, gibberish as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Delaware, come out. You can come out now. You know full well what I'm talking about. Can't say I do, old man. The American girl. What, American girl? The one you sent round to your last Honestly, night. Honestly, old fellow, I know nothing Miss about any De American Delaware, girl. Miss De Find me a Bible and I will swear on it. Have you any idea what this is all about, Margot? None whatsoever. But I'm intrigued. Paul, are you telling us you spent the night here with a girl? An American girl? Oh, how wonderfully loose. that imagination of yours, Margot. It was all above board. Ah, uh, Mr. Ravenstock. Good morning, Mrs. Cravat. I was wanting to speak What can to I do you. for you? It's about your rent. And did I hear you say you'd been entertaining a young lady? That's quite against the rules. This is a respectable house, I'll have you know. And we don't count as... Steady on, madam. Ravenstock was just telling us about a dream we woke him up out of. Don't tell me you have rules regarding dreams. There's still the matter of three weeks' rent. Four weeks. Come tomorrow. You'll get it, Mrs. Cravat. How much do you owe, old man? Never do you mind. Seven pounds ten. Well, here's a cheque for twenty guineas. Payable to bearer. Took it last night off old Fortescue himself. Gin rummy. Should tide you over for a while, Put it away, eh? Pillbeam. Appreciate the gesture, but I couldn't possibly... Take it, Paul. Be sensible. Call it an investment. Strike oil with this telly-what's-it project, and there's good money to be made. Pay me back then, old fellow, along with whatever level of interest you see fit. Here you are, Mrs. Uh, Cravat. Don't spend it all at once. Well, thank you kindly, sir. American girls? Not surprised that's the shape your dreams have been taking, old boy. Cooped up here alone, day in, day out. How is the old project coming along, incidentally? Remind me again. 
What exactly is it you're attempting to achieve, Paul? He's endeavouring to go one better than Mr. Baird and transmit three-dimensional television images in colour and with sound. Am I right, Ravenstock? I was the attention more, eh? Come on, Roger. Paul needs his rest if he's to work his wizardry. You get yourself back to bed, Paul. Have yourself another good snooze before you start hallucinating any more of those American guests. Well, I'd ask you to hallucinate one for me, old sport. But Margot here wouldn't take too kindly, I dare say. Well, if Paul could also see his way clear to hallucinating me, a virile young cowboy or cavalry officer, you'll get no complaints from this quarter, Roger. Oh, and here, belated birthday card. Many happy returns, Paul. Apologies, I forgot to pop it in the post last week. Thank you, Margot. Very thoughtful. Au revoir, Paul. Toodle pip, old man. All right, you can come out now, miss. That is, if you do exist. I exist. So I see. Disappointed. Confused. Perplexed. Bewildered. I was on my way back from the bathroom, heard voices, thought you'd have some explaining to do if they caught sight of me. So now you're satisfied it wasn't a prank? Not entirely. Would you be satisfied in my position? I guess maybe not. Obviously you can't stay, but it's equally clear that one can't reasonably expect you to leave improperly dressed for the outside world, Miss... Delman. Ah, yes, that's right, Miss Ava Delman. Now the truth, please. I woke up here. Don't ask me how I got here. All right. As for where you were conjured up from, we'll let that go for now. (laughs) You're thinking I've escaped from a padded cell in some clinic? Could I be blamed for such a conjecture? Now, the immediate problem is your lack of clothing. The difficulty is I have very little money. Grand total of... Ninepence halfpenny. Pickles and dimes. Hey, hold on. This has to be worth something. Genuine diamond. Belonged to my grandma. Wore it on her finger for 50 years. Maybe you could take it to a pawnbroker and use some of the money to buy me some clothes? Now you look kind of suspicious. Wouldn't you? Hey, I'm trusting you with my grandma's diamond ring. Not that I have an awful lot of choice. Why the hesitation? We have to do something, don't we? I'm open to other ideas. You think I stole that ring? Maybe even murdered somebody to get it? You're disarmingly frank. I'll say that for you. Well, listen, it's your call. Call? Your decision. I'm by no means an expert on the workings of time, but it could well be that our actions in the present might have repercussions in that future you say you come from. So you believe me? I wouldn't quite go that far. I'd say I'm an open-minded sort of chap. Although, of course, there are limits. And this kind of pushes hard against them, huh? Precisely. So you don't take the ring, I don't get my clothes, I go nowhere, and... All these problems remain unsolved. Just out of curiosity, where were you thinking of going? Oh, I guess I had a mind to go out and explore the London of 1934. If only I'd brought my phone along, could have got some pictures. Telephone? Pictures? In my time, we all have little mobile phones we carry around. They fit into a pocket or a handbag and have built-in cameras and lots of other <laughs> useful stuff. Oh yes, if 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 only you'd brought your uh, personal mobile telephone, we'd almost certainly have settled the question of your origin. Well, take a look at my teeth. Pretty good, huh? Not very 1934 from all I've heard about Hardly these times. Hardly conclusive proof, 
Now take a look at mine. Yeah, mother with a stickler for oral hygiene. People thought her deeply eccentric. Sugar played a strictly limited part in my childhood diet. A woman a One of filling. Time. See? That is at the back. Hmm? But just hey, one. that's pretty impressive for pre-war. War? The Great War ended a decade and a half ago. Then it would seem that we're in for another bout of mass insanity, Miss Delman. Bear of grim tidings from posterity. Listen, are you going to take the ring oh, out? All right. But only for want of an alternative. Mm, let's see. I need a dress and a coat and shoes. That'd be size 6 English for the shoes and, say, size 8 for the rest. Everything else I'll see about later. Mr. Ravenstock, you have the look of a man who's never in his life bought women's clothes. I did once purchase a scarf for an aunt. I'm relying on your judgment, Mr. Ravenstock. Here. Hey, what a cute little pair of binoculars. Opera glasses. Left here by the previous tenant. Shabby genteel. Now, if you look through the window, you'll see a row of shops over on the right. One has a window display full of mannequins. Ladies' fashions. Okay. Got it. Madeline's modes. Cute Anything name. Anything that I might use as a guide? Being a novice in this field? Maybe something like the third one along from the left? But whatever you can get. Whatever will help me blend into the crowd. Well. I'll see what I can do. And then when you have your clothes, Miss Delman, and you're out on your sightseeing trip, I take it you intend to pop round to the American Embassy? Have a word with the ambassador. Tell him what your government can expect from the coming decades. Hey, that's not funny. Sends my head into a spin. Sorry. So it's a dress, shoes and a coat. Anything else you need? Something to eat or drink? Don't have much of an appetite, but sure, go ahead. Buy some food. Bread and cheese should be fine. Thank you. I'll pay you back as soon as I am able. When one has to count the pennies, the last few days I've been getting by on... Apples? Yes! Apples from the garden next door. Tree overhangs the fence. How did you know? <sighs> Took a wild guess. Right, now I really could use those clothes. Well, of course, it all depends on whether they'll accept the ring. I stood at the window with those opera glasses and watched as Paul Ravenstock crossed the road and went off on his errand. What was he thinking? That I was crazy? Delusional? Would he be back with a couple of big guys in white coats? You got a pretty good view from that window and I studied that cityscape. Rooftops, smoking chimneys, soot-blackened walls, and a thick haze of what had to be pollution. Smog. Didn't they call it that? No skyscrapers. In fact, the biggest landmark I could make out was the distant dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And on the windowsill, the birthday card his friend Margot had left. The envelope still unopened. So this address, I discovered, was 17B Norfolk Street. Margot had fine, copper-plate handwriting, of a kind you don't see anymore in the 21st century, and a distinctive way of crossing her sevens twice. Being interested in graphics and calligraphy, I was still admiring it when... Paul, are you there? And then the door started to open. Paul hadn't locked it. Hurriedly, I tiptoed back and hid in that cupboard, holding the door closed and peeking out through the narrow gap as this mystery woman came in. She was, what's that expression? Dressed to the nines. Platinum blonde hair. A movie star she might have been. There was something about the way she stood there, looking around the room, a kind of seriousness of purpose. 
It didn't, how can I say this? It didn't seem like the attitude of a friend. She walked over to the bedroom door and looked inside. Then she went across to the bathroom and stood outside the door. Finally, she tried the bathroom door. And only then, as though satisfied that he wasn't home, did this Diana, whoever she was, turn her attention to the books and papers on the table. She stood there and examined the papers, opened up the books, noting which pages were turned down at the corner. Every few seconds, she'd pause, glance at the door, giving the impression she was listening out for footsteps on the stairs. From her handbag, she took out a compact camera. I never realized they made such dinky little cameras back then and switched on the desk lamp and tilted it down and started photographing papers and pages from Paul's books. She turned from the desk to the Ravenstock transopticator, snapping away, moving expertly from angle to angle. Then she slipped the little camera back in her bag. Within minutes, she'd be out of there and Paul would never know. Something told me it was wrong to let her get away with it. A dumb move, maybe. I mean, I didn't stop to think that she might also have a gun in that bag, but before I knew it, I'd stepped out from that cupboard, robbing this Diana person of every ounce of her poise. Who who are you? What are you doing here? I happen to be a friend of Mr. Paul Ravenstock. Where is he? He went out. That much I'd gathered. Are you some form of domestic? Nope, I was spying on a spy. And what exactly do you mean by that? Why, the camera camera? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes, you do. I'm under no obligation to discuss any of my business with you, whoever you might be. And you still haven't told me who you are, or why you were hiding in the cupboard, Miss American Girl? For a time, we just stood there in icy silence. She tried to hide her feelings in that typical British way, but I could see she was disconcerted. I believe you still owe me an explanation. First, I'll have yours. You'll have nothing of the sort. I certainly don't have to answer to a complete stranger. A mere American. Excuse me, Poison Ivy. Another ten years and us mere Americans will be helping to save your British bacon. Let me guess. You're a showgirl or a shop assistant? Men are depressingly weak. You'd do well to get dressed and disappear and spare Mr. Ravenstock the embarrassing aftermath of a regrettable lapse of judgment. That is, if you've an ounce of decency. You seem at least reasonably level-headed for your type. And what type's that? How do you know I'm not the American ambassador's daughter? All the more reason for a swift departure, I should have thought. Besides, that telltale pause in mid-sentence. You were clearly extemporizing. Now, I suggest you pop off while the going's good. Like this? Stark naked, for all I care. Now, do I really have to descend to your level and not put too fine a point on it? Tell you to bugger off. Here, five pounds. Off you go to your next, um, rendezvous and we'll say no more about it. Hey, what kind of girl do you think I am? Oh, is it really necessary to spell it out? Someone's looking for a sock on their patrician English jaw. Hello, Paul. Diana? Just popped by on a social visit on my way back from a party at the Fortescue's. Yes, I know. Pellbeam told me. Dreadful boars. Worth it for the food in the way. See, Roger popped in too, with Margot, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I was just chatting to your charming American friend here. 
Well, aren't you going to introduce us, Paul? Diana Thrapsley, meet Ava Delman. I admire your sang-froid, Miss Delman. Yours too, Paul, for that matter. Life does seem to be imitating a fader fast this morning, does it not? But, of course, your domestic arrangements are your own affair when all is said and done. Here are your clothes, Miss Delman. Much obliged. And as you can see, I have some bread and cheese. You're welcome to join us for breakfast, Diana. How very rustic. So you're choosing to brazen it out. Very well. If I hadn't already returned your engagement ring, now would be the perfect time. I'll bid the both of you good day. Hey, not so fast. I beg your pardon? You never did explain about the camera. Camera? I haven't the faintest idea what she means, Paul. I thought Americans were supposed to be plain-speaking, not cryptic to the point of opacity. Okay, Diana. I'll put it plainly. In your bag, you have a little spy camera. You were taking photos of that gizmo and Paul's papers. He thought you were alone. I was hiding in the closet. Ah! <laughs> now, really? I can't say I'm awfully well acquainted with the American sense of humour, but really, Paul, this is getting beyond the pale. Would you care to search my handbag? Well, if Paul won't, I will. You'll do no such thing. Thank you, Paul. I'm relieved to find that someone, at least, has a sense of propriety. And now, if you don't mind, I'll go down and hail a taxi cab, since it's clear that my visit was somewhat inopportune. I'll, I'll get one for you. There's really no need. Goodbye, Paul. 1934? The Nazis. Or maybe Russia? Italy? Japan? My history's not all that hot, but I do know a spy when I see one. Do you? Do you really? Yes, I do, and your friend Diana is a spy. Is she now? Miss Delman, you have your clothes. I suggest you take them into the bedroom and get dressed. Help yourself with some bread and cheese, and then be on your way. Oh, and here's the rest of the money I was given for your ring. Twenty-two pounds, six shillings, and ninepence. Along with the ticket, should you wish to redeem it in due course. Thanks. Should have grabbed her bag and pulled out that camera. I've known Diana for quite some time, Miss Delman. At one point, not so long ago, we were engaged to be married. Your accusations are ludicrous. I still don't know who you are, or why you're here, but... Well, at the risk of rudeness, let's just say you've worn out your welcome. Go and play your silly games with someone else. So you're turning me out onto the street? You now have clothes and money. I'm sure you'll manage. I took the clothes into the bedroom and got dressed. Not a perfect fit by any means, and the shoes pinched a little. But he'd chosen pretty well, and I especially liked the cute little hat. I felt like I was going to a fancy dress party, or I'd been hired as an extra in some period drama. I came back out of the bedroom to find him sitting at the table, writing in a notebook. I've made a pot of coffee and there's some bread and cheese. Help yourself. We don't stand on ceremony here. Thanks. So, how do I look? Fit to mingle with the public at large. She really did have a camera in that bag. Please, Miss Delman. Not that again. I'm sorry, I just don't like to see someone being oh, deceived. You mysteriously appeared in my room, sans attire or explanation, and cast aspersions on my former fiancé that are tantamount to treason. Despite that, I have done all I can to help you. All I ask in return is a graceful departure. Your continued presence leaves me underjoyed. Ah! Hello? What's that? 
There's a fire! We ran out onto the street and I felt like I'd stepped into a movie set. People milling around in period costume. The block next door was burning. A couple of guys were struggling with a ladder, but it was too short to reach a high window, the only one that didn't have flames licking out through it. The mother was a big woman, and when she tried to climb a rickety-looking drain pipe that passed close to the upstairs window, they pulled her back. Everything had happened so fast, and it was only when I saw Paul push past the others and make for the drain pipe that it all came back to me. I was about to watch him climb up there to his death. I pushed my way through the crowd, and by the time I got to Paul, he was just starting his climb. A guy stepped in my way, a guy with a big clunky newspaper-type camera. I elbowed him aside, then tripped over something. By the time I scrambled back up, Paul was climbing and was almost out of reach. I leapt and grabbed hold of his foot and clung onto it and wouldn't let go for anything. Mr. Hellman, what on earth are you You'll doing? hold your weight. He's right. He'll get himself killed. Let's wait for the fire. Paul struggled, but the onlookers dragged him down and held him back. Being pretty small, I stood a better chance. I'd already slipped off my shoes, and before anyone could stop me, I was up that drain pipe like a squirrel. It almost gave way a couple of times, but pretty soon I was up there level with the window. As I scrambled and fumbled and swung myself in, the drain pipe finally came loose from the wall. The room was full of smoke and I had to feel my way across to where the baby was. I grabbed hold of the poor kid and stumbled back to the window, just as the flames began to lick into the room. There was no way on earth I could get back with a baby in my arms. Then I saw a bunch of people standing below, holding out a big blanket between them. I cradled the baby tight and prayed and jumped. How's the baby? Insane. Are you all right? I think I may have twisted my ankle. I was astonishingly brave, Miss Delman. If reckless and foolhardy in the extreme, you should have let me take the risk. I was about to. You wouldn't have made it, Paul. You can't know that. Yes, I can. We slipped away as soon as we could, but not before the newspaper guy had managed to snap a picture of the two of us together. Why are you so sure that I would have failed? Were you succeeded, Miss Delman? Heard you call me Ava Kind of liked it. <laughs> Stick with it, Mr. Ravenstock. Paul, can't you guess why I'm so sure? So, uh, as I understand it, you're telling me I originally perished in an attempt to rescue that poor child. And, and you've just come along and, and altered the course of events in our favor. Which would mean I owe you my life. As is that infant. If that truly is the case, then we are both very grateful. Although, I'm still inclined to advise you to take up a career writing stories for the science fiction magazines. Bravo, sir. Don't you want to be ashamed of yourself? Proud, but careful. 
Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame you thy fearful symmetry? You that in my friend George's apartment, plus some other stuff by, uh, I think it was Robert Burns. In the 21st century, those first few lines, and then you forgot the rest of it and cursed. Damn and blast. And you said you helped those fellows in, oh, where was it? Notting Hill? I'm pretty sure it was Notting Hill. You said you hoped they'd be prepared to swear in a court of law. You, you didn't mention those details before. They only just came back to me. These last few hours haven't exactly been easy. So did you tell anyone or write it down? No. I didn't write it down. And they never picked up the transmission in Notting Hill. But I suppose that's not to say it wasn't received Once. elsewhere. In the 21st century. You do intrigue me, Miss Delman. But please, don't ask me to accept all this H.G. Wells nonsense. here I am. Indeed. Here you are. We went back along a narrow alleyway, overhung by an apple tree. (laughs) I was a little worried about bumping into the landlady, but she must have been out looking at the fire. My ankle was swollen and painful. There was a smear of dried blood on my hand from where I'd cut it, not deeply, while scrambling in through that window. Paul helped me to get cleaned up and bandaged, with a strip torn from an old sheet. He was super gentle in his ministrations. Outside, they had the fire in the neighboring block under control. You could still smell the smoke. I sat and wondered what would happen now I'd changed things. I remember that old Star Trek episode, the one where Captain Kirk finds himself back in the 1930s and he falls in love with a peace campaigner. But then he learns that if he doesn't stand aside and allow her to die in an accident, she'll be successful in her campaign. The Nazis will win the war. And in centuries to come, there'll be no Starfleet and no Enterprise. History rewritten. Penny for your thoughts. I was just wondering, what if I really am crazy? I wouldn't say you're crazy. No? Not at all. Granted, you took a crazy risk climbing that drainpipe, but that was just one moment of madness. And it paid off handsomely. So, at that moment, craziness was a definite you advantage. You were crazy enough to risk it too. Indeed I was. And now I, I feel confused. I feel I ought to thank you, be grateful to you. I don't know, there are things I I seem unable to put into words. Do you feel you can trust me? I, yes, yes, I I do. That's a strange Why strange? Because trusting you means being prepared to accept your story. And something within me rebels against it. Logic, common sense. You still think I'm deluded? I'm certainly no expert in matters of the mind, though I'm aware that delusions can be extremely powerful. And yet, I'm unable to dismiss what you've told me. What if I were to say I... I half believe you? Well, I guess that's a pretty big advance on get the hell out of here with all these Orson Welles fairy tales or whatever. Orson... Orson, Amazing guy. You won't have heard of him. But you will, in a few years. I meant H.G. Wells. Sorry. So tell me, in your 21st century, a television receiver in every home. Yep. Screens anywhere and everywhere. Theatre, opera, 
educational talks. Amongst other stuff? A whole big crazy ocean of other stuff. Some of it not so... highbrow. I guess if you saw it, you'd say civilizations jumped the shark. Shark? Let me guess. An American expression for something having drastically improved. The opposite, I'm afraid. Well, I suppose it would be like the motor car. Gains and losses. You know something? I'm beginning to only half believe it myself. It's kind of fading a little already. And that's scary. Not to worry. He placed his hand on mine, squeezed it gently. Perhaps you ought to write down everything you can recall from the future of yours? Well, you... This future of yours. That sounds like it came from the other half that doesn't want to believe. Half does. You mentioned the coming war. Flash forward to 1939. Britain and France declare war on Germany on account of Poland. 1941, Japan attacks the USA at Pearl Harbor, and I think the Nazis invade Russia. You studied military history. History of design. All that war stuff's kind of side knowledge. You pick it up along the way. And in this terrible conflict, who emerges victorious? Our side. 1945. (laughs) Well, that's a comfort to hear. Stick around a few years and you'll have your proof. Or... Maybe not. Maybe I've messed up the timeline. Butterfly effect. Tiny changes can have major consequences. Or is that still to be discovered? You really do have an extraordinary mind. Along with the... (sighs) Suppose we better see who it is. First, we'd better get you into the bedroom. Oh, sorry. Unfortunate phrasing. Hmm. I I meant to get you out of sight. I could have kissed him right there. But there's a time and a place. He helped me into the bedroom and, being a curious cat, I stood behind the door, holding it ajar and peeping through as he went to see who the visitor was. Paul Ravenstock? Yes? Could you sign for this, please, sir? What is it? I wouldn't know, sir. Apart from this blooming heavy. Nearly did ourselves an injury getting out them stairs, didn't we, Indeed we did, Charlie. Herculean effort, it called for. I think our Lolan Hardy was. Who sent it? Uh, Mr. Baird, sir, Scottish gentleman like yourself, said you might find it useful. Ah, well, in that case. I watched from the doorway as Paul stood aside and the two guys, dressed in flat caps and dungarees, brought in a large wooden crate. Maybe it was because I'd seen too many old Hitchcock-type movies, but to me, those two guys seemed like phonies. The way they kept exchanging sneaky little glances while Paul's attention was elsewhere. One took out a pipe and tobacco and lit up. I seemed to be the only one who noticed when this little sliver of paper fell from his pocket and floated down Mark, onto the threadbare I'm carpet. Afraid that's all I can muster by way of a good right, thank you, sir. Alright, Ava, the coast is clear. Good old bear day. You'll have to meet him. You know, amazing chap. Got started with television around a decade ago. While I was still a schoolboy. Taught me an awful lot. Nice to know he still thinks of his old assistant from time to time. And he'd be fascinated to hear your story. Now, let's see about getting this crate open. Should have a big screwdriver somewhere. Ah, here we are. Oh my god! I have a, a really bad feeling about this. Is she... I... I think so. We, 
We, we better telephone the police. Those two guys had just delivered a dead body, and I recognized the clothes. That same getup she'd been wearing earlier that morning when she paid her visit with that little spy camera. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I just don't understand. One of them dropped this piece of paper. What? A piece of paper. I dropped by one of those delivery men. It says 17B Norfolk That's Street. This address. Where they were to deliver. Look closely, Paul. Isn't that handwriting familiar? Okay, what do you mean? And here's the birthday card your friend Margot left. Compare the two. Are, are All you trying to I tell know me that... is it's the very same handwriting. Look at the sevens. Crossed twice. Is that a common thing in 1934 England? No, no, it isn't. But it's absurd to, to conclude that they were given this address by Margot. For heaven's sake, that would suggest... Oh, sounds like the cops already. I, I just, I just don't understand. I think I do. I've seen enough movies. This has to be a frame-up. They'll think you're trying It'll to dispose ridiculous. of the body. I'll tell them the truth. I'll, uh, I'll show them this bit of paper. I won't prove anything. You've got to get out of here. Run away. Then they really will think I'm guilty. Let them lock you up. You'll never get a chance to prove your innocence. 1934. They still hang people this here, right? Say, Who would kill Diana? That's Why? what we need to find out. He stood there, shell-shocked. Poor guy. I grabbed his hand and dragged him into the bedroom and stuck the chair under the door handle like I'd seen people do in old movies. Then I pulled him across to the window. It was one of those windows set into the roof. Paul had gone into deep shock mode. I bundled him out like a kid and then climbed up after him. My ankle was giving me a lot of pain, but I knew that if those cops caught me, it would be bye-bye 21st century and hello rubber room. I scrambled out onto the roof tiles and found Paul just sitting there. Come on, pal, we have to get away from here. Somehow, I managed to get him across and down onto the flat roof above that boarded-up shop on the ground floor. I remember seeing a rusty iron ladder attaching to the wall at one side. I dragged Paul over there. The cold air must have brought him to his senses a little, for he climbed down pretty swiftly. I followed, and we wound up in a narrow alleyway. As the police car was out front, we headed toward the back of the building and stepped out onto the busy street. Should have street. remained there and told them the truth. I wouldn't advise it. We need to get ourselves away from here. And fast. I bundled him onto a bus. It was packed in and we couldn't talk. We got off outside a pub. We both needed a drink. And I needed to rest that ankle. We sat down at the back in a quiet corner near a crackling fire. Now, I hate to come back to this, but remember how I told you she was photographing? Diana. Her name is was Diana. And you're asking me to believe she was a spy? Photographing my work? To to what purpose? I'm just potting around with electrical odds and ends. One of a hundred little amateurs who like to think they might one day come up with something useful. Maybe what you're doing is more sense. important than you realize. Radar. Hasn't that got something to do with early television? Radar? Oh, I guess you don't have it yet. A finding out where airplanes are in the sky by bouncing signals off them. At least, I think that's how it works. I do remember Mr. Beard suggesting something along those lines. But that wasn't my plan. That gizmo of yours, could it be used in that way? Or maybe even, I don't know, to project mirages to fool enemies? Listen, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but military applications, that's what I'm trying to say. This isn't some Edgar Wallace thriller. 
Besides, you're forgetting that I know you, Diana Well. We were going to get married until she broke off our engagement. She didn't want to wed a struggling, penniless inventor. Sensible girl. There's no reason for you to get yourself involved in all this. And I don't see what I'll achieve by running away like a guilty man. You're buying time to prove you're innocent. It's all very well, but I wouldn't know where to begin. Oh, for heaven's sake. Someone must have seen them delivering that crate. And we have that piece of paper they dropped. It's a pretty slender thread to hang a defense on. Not, not only do you expect me to believe that Diana was a spy, but it was Margot who arranged for the crate to be delivered. All that because of one silly little scrap of paper. Well, you saw it for yourself. Well, after a shock like that, how can I even trust my own sense? You can trust me. Didn't I get you out of there? Yeah, there's nothing to stop the police from concluding that I'm responsible. You know you're innocent and I know you're innocent. Where's Lord Pierre Whimsy when you need him? You're not alone, Paul. If I were you, Miss Delman, Ava, I'd keep well away. You wouldn't want to be charged as an accessory. Would you desert me? I don't think so. Now, it's pretty clear that someone wants to see you framed for murder. Well, if anyone bears me that degree of malice, I've been blissfully unaware all this time. Maybe they used your friend Margot to get your address. Maybe it's someone she knows. And who might they be? Whoever is behind it all. I need another drink. Would you care for one? Or on second thoughts, perhaps we should watch the pennies if we're going to be fugitives from the law. Oh, this is hopeless. I'm going to turn myself in. You do whatever you see fit, Miss Just Delman. you wait a minute, mister. It was your crazy gizmo that yanked me back here from the 21st century, and I'm relying on you to send me home. And that's not going to happen if they put you Shh. behind bars. People will think you're... You've gone potty. Oh, you're my only hope. You're forgetting that my room's now out of bounds. We can never well, return maybe there. We could put together another transopticator? Given time, perhaps. Oh, and money. But there's no guarantee I can recreate the extraordinary conditions that brought you here. If indeed that's what happened. <sighs> I'll telephone the police. You'll be behind bars while the cops investigate, and the people who did this they'll still be free. Maybe the intention was to upset you to the point where you couldn't work. Well, if so, then they've succeeded. So aside from doing the sensible thing and leaving it in the hands of the police, do you got any bright ideas? Have you known Margot a long time? About a year or so. Mary through Pillbeam. If that's Margot's handwriting, there has to be a reasonable explanation. I mean, you are certain it was dropped by one of those delivery yep, men? Yep, came out of his pocket. I'm sorry. Alright, let's see what Margot has to say. The landlord looks the amiable type. Judging by those newspaper cuttings on the wall by the bar. Claudette Corbet. K. Francis. I'd say a little transatlantic charm would secure us the use of the telephone. A extraordinary, Margot. Why? Well, you've never been in the habit of contacting me by telephone. Diana's dead. Nobody killed her. Sent her body to me in a wooden crate. Mr. Baird is out of the country, and I couldn't think of anyone else to turn to apart from you and Pilby. Matter of fact, Margot, my American friend is real enough. 
Hello, Margot. This is Ava Delman. I represent the United States government. I can corroborate everything Paul has told you. Charmed to make your acquaintance, Miss um, Delman. Although I don't understand how or why you're involved. It's a long story. Paul, if what you've said about Diana is true, and I can scarcely bring myself to believe it, then you ought to have gone to the police immediately. No need. They came to us. Someone must have tipped them off. We managed to elude them. Naturally, Roger and I will do everything we can to help. So you're saying Diana was killed? By who? I don't know, but one of the delivery men dropped a note with my address written on it. Note? A slip of paper. Do you have this note? Or is it with the police? I have it here. Frankly, Margot, I'm thinking of turning myself in. After all, I'm innocent. Perhaps the police will be able to find out who gave these people my address. Presumably they employ handwriting experts. And there's something oddly familiar about this particular handwriting, although I can't quite place it. I suggest before making any rash decisions, you talk to my solicitor, Sir William. I'll arrange a meeting this afternoon, 4pm, at Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square. Outside St Martin's in the field. Trafalgar Square. Very well. Trafalgar Square it is. Bring along Miss um, Delman. I'm sure Sir William will have some questions for her too. All right, Margot. Will you be there? I've an important engagement this afternoon. It might be a little uh, tricky, but I shall do my utmost. Bye, Margot. And thanks again. Now that's a cool customer. Thank you for trusting me, Paul. Thank you for listening. So you represent the United States government? I just threw that in there to confuse her. Could be it even scared her a little. And why Trafalgar Square? Busy. Plenty of people around. Easy to slip away into the crowd if we have to. Well, you certainly think like a government agent. <laughs> just seen a lot of movies. This isn't cinema, Ava. This is Margot, mixed up in a murder. Or so it seems. There has to be a sensible explanation. That's what I told myself when I wound up in 1934. Well, here we are, St. Martin's in the Fields. And any one of those gentlemen on the steps there could be a plain-clothed police officer who's been given my I don't think Margot would want the police involved. Not while we have that piece of paper. Though we've no way of proving it was dropped by that delivery man. Hey, Hello, Pillbeam. Ravenstock, old man. Poor Diana. Dreadful business. Extraordinary. Downright appalling. Afraid Margot couldn't make it. Filled me in and asked me to scoot along here and pick you up. Motorcar's just round the corner. Sir Wilfred, the solicitor cove, he's waiting in the back. And I suppose you must be this mysterious American girl. Sir Wilfred? So much about. What you mean, Sir William? Uh, yes. Yes. Well, I think you'd better go and ask him, whatever his name is, to show himself. Not an awful lot of trust in that request, old man. I mean, dash it Even so, Pilbim, I'd be obliged if you'd indulge us. Recent events have Oh, topic. very well. I suppose in that case, you leave me no choice but to insist that you hand over that scrap of paper, old man. Colt. 0.25 automatic. Very effective silencer. Could blow a nasty hole in Miss America here. And these people all around us will simply assume she's, uh, had an attack of the vapors. That's hardly cricket, Pilby. Regrettable, I agree. I'll take the firearm, sir, if you don't mind. Get your hands off me, you 
Sergeant Carter, Special Branch. And these are my colleagues. If you wouldn't mind coming along with us, Mr. Ravenstock. Oh, and your lady friend too. We were suddenly surrounded by cops. We had no choice but to go with them down the steps to the curb, where a big black car was waiting. Margo! Ah, Paul. And Miss, uh... Delman. Ah, yes. I expect you're both rather confused. The devil's Would you care for a drop Margo. of brandy? You look as though you know. I'm glad at least someone does. Your life's in danger, Paul. Your work is of interest to, shall we say, certain rival powers. That's ridiculous. You're too modest. Or, if I were to put it rather more cruelly, I'd accuse you of living in a fool's paradise. Who exactly are you, Margo? Is that even your real name? It is, as a matter of fact. Suffice to say, I work for the government. We've been, well, keeping an eye on you. Most considerate, Margo. Are you keeping an eye on others in my line of work, too? Mr. Beard. Oh, yes. And so unfortunately, are agents of those other aforementioned rival powers. I hate to have to tell you this, Paul, but Diana... Well, if you're going to tell me that she was a spy, then that is Diana was employed by the Secret Service. Our Secret Service. Her job was much the same as mine, to keep a record of your activities and progress. Merely a different department. Sadly, internal rivalries can be almost as much as international ones. Bumped her off? I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't mean to sound callous, but it's an occupational hazard, to which I've become rather inured. Well, I haven't. As for poor Diana, I'm afraid the person who did away with her is none other than Roger Pillbeam. Really? He even forged my handwriting on that delivery note as an extra precaution. The consequence professional. Pillbeam may be a bit of an ass, but that's no... He's no cold-blooded killer, or even hot-blooded for that matter. And you, of all people, should know that. Unfortunately, Paul, the Roger Pillbeam you know is a cunning fabrication. All that breezy, bonhomie, hail-fellow well-met. In actual fact, he's one of their top men. Part of my job was to, uh, stay close. Not a pleasant who assignment. who are they, if you don't mind me asking? Those who would steal our secrets and use them secrets? against us. Aren't you being a bit melodramatic, Margot? There are people all over the world experimenting with television. As I said, Paul, you underestimate yourself. Even Mr. Baird hasn't matched your recent achievements. But we're wasting time. These are ruthless operatives we're dealing with. They'll stop at nothing. Which is why we found you a safe haven where you can continue your work Under undisturbed. The, of the British government. I am not in the munitions business. Now you're being naive, Paul. Miss... Delman, perhaps you could talk some common sense into our brilliant young prodigy. Incidentally, at the risk of indelicacy, I'm still not quite sure how and where you fit into all of this. In exactly what, uh, capacity do you represent your I government, Miss Delman? I, I need her for my work. Really? Earlier this morning, you seemed in some doubt as to whether Miss Delman existed at all. So, where are we going? Driver! Now I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave. Mark, you, you didn't people. answer Miss Delman's question. No time, alas. But you'll find out soon enough. Au revoir. Locks? Driver? Driver! Damn it! If you can hear Margo, you can hear me. Stop the car! What in heaven's name was that? 
They're pumping some kind of gas. <laughs> I woke up with one hell of a hangover. In a bed, not a brand new experience, I gotta admit, but for once I found myself fully clothed and on top of the bed covers, with my headache, the result not of alcohol. Paul was lying beside me. I shook his shoulder. Paul? Paul? Oh, for pity's sake. Where are we? Let's see. Now, there's a view. A view? Of what? Water. Looks like we're somewhere on the coast. All oh, this blasted cloak and dagger stuff. Are you alright, Miss Delman? I think so. Guess I'm gonna have to give up on trying to get you to call me Ava. Ava? Pretty name. Who are you? Really? Exactly who and what I told you. Strangely enough. In the midst of all this insanity, I can almost believe that. Almost. Well, shall we see what awaits us downstairs? We were in a small cottage. Pretty basic, even for the 1930s. But clean. In fact, in 21st century terms, you'd call it rural, minimalist chic. On the kitchen table stood a gramophone, and beside it, a note, typed on a smudgy typewriter. Well, at least we're not locked in. What does the note say? play the recording on that gramophone. More silly games. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Paul Ravenstock, (laughs) I presume. Me? Yes? My name's Huntley. I work for a government department. Never mind, Mitch. We've been charged with uh, looking after you. Really? Not only to ensure your personal safety, but also in the interests of national security. You will be able to continue with your work in peace while you're here. Out in the barn, you will find you have your own generator, along with facilities which ought to be more than adequate. Leave us a list of any additional equipment or supplies you require. Oh, and you'll find the larder well stocked. Our men will be keeping watch, discreetly, to ensure your safety, for your safety, for your safety. Oh, yes, that that must be one of our men. Uh Uh-huh. That chap out there in that little boat just caught a glint of binoculars. So anyway, let's go and have ourselves a look at this wonderful workshop in the barn. Hey, they put us on an island. Hmm. Can't be more than a couple of miles across. Just the one house. Well, at least not completely barren. Good to see we have some woods to walk in. Not bad. Not bad at all. It appears that we have most of what we need. Nice of them to permit you to stay. No doubt they thought some female companionship would be beneficial. Why are you looking at me like that, Paul? Very clever. Trying to throw me off the same with that American accent. Paul, I don't even know who they are. Jolly good, isn't she? Margot? <laughs> One would never have known. And you. 
spinning that ridiculous yarn about travelling through time. The fire, the baby, all of it staged. All calculated to win my confidence. Now you're being paranoid. Well, imagine yourself in my shoes. Last night, I went to bed knowing who I was, what was what, and who my friends were. Now... Diana's dead. Pillweem's some sort of ghastly traitor. Margaret turns out to be a secret agent and I find myself bundled off to a remote island supposedly for my own protection. Next, you'll be suggesting that these so-called rival powers have heard rumours that I have found a way to send people through time. Well, I'm afraid they're in for a bitter disappointment when the true mundane facts of the matter emerge. How could I have imagined that whole world? The 21st century. The human brain can do extraordinary things to itself. And you've changed your mind again. You think I'm crazy? I think I'm crazy. Well, I must be. I'm sure you're saner than me. Thanks. I'm sorry. Ava, don't go thinking I don't want to help you. Look, are you hungry? Kind of. Let's see what there is to eat in this godforsaken place. You cook a pretty good omelette, Paul Ravenstock. (laughs) Thank my mother for that. Nice of them to leave us some fresh eggs. Would you care for more coffee? Uh Uh-huh. Thank heavens we're not cooped up in the city somewhere. I can't work unless I can think. And I can't think unless I'm permitted to go for walks in the fresh air. Preferably through woods. Hampstead Heath was a lifesaver. Yep, it sure was. Me too. Then it seems we're kindred spirits in that respect. As I recall, you said that you were looking after a friend's flat while they were away. So presumably, you'll have vanished into thin air. That should cause a bit of a mystery. I hope you didn't have any pets to look after. No, just some plants to water. Okay, I know it's crazy, but as you said, put yourself in my shoes. But then, I I was fooled by Diana. Fooled by Margot. Seems I'm easily fooled. Though strangely enough, I don't feel you're trying to fool me. Perhaps because... And I... Well, um, because, do you, do do you have a gentleman friend back wherever? Not anymore. I'm sorry. Sorry it didn't work out. Well, yes, if if it caused you upset. I I mean, to say, well, what I meant to say was... He was so awkward, so sweet, so 1930s. If I hadn't taken matters into my own hands, that crazy... Tension would have gone on cranking up and up and up and until the whole place just exploded. And do all women tattoo their bodies in the 21st century? You disapprove, Mr. Ravenstock? I might have, Miss Delman. Before I met you and became a convert to the art. <laughs> and when did you first learn of my existence? A photo in an old musty book. I thought you looked kind of cute. Cute? Yep. And how about you? Mr. I'll have you know, it's the height of bad manners to shy away from mutual self-disclosure at intimate moments like this. Would it come as a surprise if I said you fascinated me from the outset? There followed a pretty idyllic couple of weeks. Now and then, we'd see one or two of those government guys out in the boat, keeping watch. Paul got to work in the barn, and I did what I could to help. 
Although so much of that old electronic stuff, the science of it, was a mystery to me. Paul worked like an artist, obsessive, losing track of time, didn't do a lot of writing down, said he'd make notes later on. He'd forget to sleep, forget to eat, forget about, well, no, there's something he most definitely did not forget about. No, sir. I started feeling a little guilty that I was distracting him too much. Soon enough, we had another one of those gizmos starting to take shape. And then one day, a motorboat showed up. I see you're nicely settled in, children. Come to read us a bedtime story, Margot. Well, I confess, it's not merely a social visit. I assume you have a list of items you'd like me to obtain for you. We do indeed. Here. Hmm. Most of those shouldn't be too difficult to get hold of, insofar as I can judge. One or two sound rather esoteric. Zontinium bulbs? But I'll see that you get them. Thanks, Margot. Although, I'd better warn you, they're few and far between, and they cost a pretty penny, those zontinium bulbs. Perhaps the rarest of metals? Extremely high melting point. Used as a filament, it produces the most extraordinary light with the least amount of energy wasted as heat. Scientist fellow named Zontine extracted it from a fragment of... Very interesting, I'm sure. But I was never a keen student of the sciences. So, how long's this... this exile set to continue? Difficult to say. Until the immediate danger is judged to have passed, I should imagine. And I'm afraid that's in the hands of my superiors. How did you get into the espionage business? You know me, Paul. I was always a thrill seeker. Now, I trust you've been keeping a written record of your progress. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I'm a bit behind in that respect. Don't have even a a diary? Afraid not, Margot. I'll be getting round to putting it all on paper sooner or later. Dear. You see, Paul, I was instructed to take a copy of your notes. For security reasons. It's standard practice in this sort of affair. The people upstairs won't like it. Perhaps you could write me a praisey, at least. Oh, if you insist. Thank you. I did chalk up a few figures on the wall in the barn. I'll need to refer to them. Shan't be long. And you, my dear. How are you finding things out in the, uh, sticks, as I believe you say, across the pond? Oh, I'm cool with it. Cool. An American expression? Uh-huh, I've a feeling it'll catch on. Big time. Would you like a cup of coffee? Actually, I'd prefer tea, sure. if you happen to have Pay any. back in a moment. Warum ist Hans nichts gekommen? Und mich zu ersetzen? Ich bin seit zwölf Stunden hier. You idiot. And do not mention any names. There we are, Margot. There's really not much to say as yet, beyond what I've already written down back in London. Couldn't you have had all my old equipment shipped out here? Too great a risk, unfortunately. They'll be watching, waiting for us to do exactly that. Okay, Margot, your tea's brewing. I like it good and strong, so there's no hurry. In the meantime, might I pop off and... uh, powder my nose? Certainly. We could even boast indoor plumbing, would you believe? Through there, and on your left. Paul, I guess you're not going to believe this, but Margot's... Yes, I know. 
Then you also overheard that little exchange at the window. Uh-huh, so what are we going to do? I don't know. And that business with Pilbeam at Trafalgar Square, staged for our benefit. No doubt they're in it together. So you're still going to hand over your notes? Nothing there that would be of much help to even a business rival, let alone international spies. Not even Zontinium bulbs? Well, in fact, they're all strictly necessary. But if these people are willing to cater to my every need, then why not ask for the best components available? Last one I had. I scrimped and saved for six months to order it. Split the beams so it could replace all three standard bulbs better all round, and then the damn thing went and blew just after it. Do you take sugar in your yes, tea, Margot? Two. Many thanks, Miss Delman. It is. Delman, I take it you appreciate our need for security? Sure. Wouldn't want this stuff getting into the wrong hands. Indeed. But I must say, it does seem such a shame you don't feel you can be a little more forthcoming as to your own part in this. As a matter of course, inquiries have been made. Perfectly routine in these cases, but quite frankly, my dear, you remain an enigma. I hasten to add that this is nothing personal. I have orders, which I sometimes follow only grudgingly and with extreme reluctance. Nevertheless, it's my duty to follow them. Well, please tell your spy master that my private life is no business of his, regardless of whether Miss Delman works for the American government or is in fact a showgirl or a shoe shop assistant or for that matter, a time traveler for the 21st century. A few minutes later, Margot was gone. Had we given anything away? Did she know we were gone to her? The next day, all the stuff Paul had asked for arrived in a motorboat. Even the Zontinium bulbs. Well, one Zontinium bulb with an apologetic little note. It was all they could get. Paul got back to work. He was putting together two of those transopticators, and I did what I could to help. Finally, we were ready to test them out. Paul was gonna try projecting an image of himself from the barn to the cottage. I went across and waited, and waited. He was faint, distorted, but there he was. If only for a few moments before the image broke up completely. I ran back into the barn to tell him, but he was gone. The gizmo was still switched on. But Paul had vanished. I looked around, couldn't find him anywhere. My heart was hammering away like crazy as I stood there wondering what to do, wondering what I'd do if Paul never came back. And then I heard the motorboat. Ah, hello, Miss Delman. Hi, Margot. May I speak to Paul? I expect he's busy, as ever. But it's rather important. He went for a walk around the island. Sometimes he needs to do that. Needs a clear head so he can think. Alone? Uh-huh. You know how it is. Two people together all the time. You you kind of need your own space. I see. Yes. It's not a very large island. And when are you expecting him back? Might not be for a while. Sometimes he'll sit down somewhere and stay there for hours thinking about his work. I'll tell him you called. 
Any message I can pass on? Perhaps I'd better wait. Could be a long wait. Never. Well, I guess you better come in. Could I make you a cup of tea? Thank you. Are you quite all right, Miss Delman? You don't look it, I have to say. Not missing the bright lights of London, No, just feeling a little... What's the expression? A little under the weather. You seem, uh, upset, if you don't mind my saying so. Come, my dear. I know a damsel in distress when I see one. We stood there in silence. Margot's eyes never left me. All I could think about was Paul. Pray that he would show up. Oh, but what if he never did? Miss Delman, I really think you ought to come clean. <gasps> Paul! What? 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 What happened? You just appeared out of nowhere, right there in That's front of us. Absurd. Paul, I swear. Is that? Is that Margot? She fainted when she saw it happen. Pretty nearly fainted myself. You just kind of beamed in like something out of Star Trek. Hey, wait. St- Star what? It's a TV show set in space. People travel around by, I don't know, getting broken up into atoms and put together again someplace I else. I the vaguest idea of what you're talking about. Even so, if that's what really occurred, it would, well, it, it would contravene all known scientific all laws. Unknown laws? Paul, good God. Marco, you are just... you okay? I guess you must have fainted for a moment you, there when you... Paul came in. He burst in pretty quickly. Gave you just quite a shock too. Ma- materialized. <laughs> Margot, you make me sound like a ghost. <laughs> oh, admittedly, I suppose I did arrive unheralded. But, but, but how? Would you believe the sun chose that very moment to emerge and practically dazzle me as I came through the doorway? Tripped over the edge of the rug and measured my length on the floor like some silent comedian. Anyway, Margot, what brings you here again so soon? I'm afraid my superiors aren't quite satisfied with the notes you've provided. Well, you can tell those superiors of yours to go and take a running jump. This is a matter of national security, Paul. We need a complete record of your progress. And I'm told that certain vital details are... The reason certain vital details are missing is simply because they've yet to be fully quantified. Without getting too technical, the device gives rise to certain curious effects which are proving extraordinarily difficult to isolate and measure. When I have the figures, I'll jot them down. I'm I'm sorry, Margot, but for the present, at least, the details I've already provided will simply have to suffice. I see. Well, I've been instructed to give you until the end of this week. And if I don't oblige? That's not for me to decide. It's none too pleasant, Margot, to feel that one is being held prisoner. As I explained, Paul, you're here for your protection. We furnished you with everything you need to continue with your work. You don't even lack companionship. I appreciate that, Margot. But Rome wasn't built in a day, and I can only work at my own pace. I shall return at the end of the week. But after that, I'm afraid the matter is entirely out of my hands. My superiors have their own views on how to proceed. Au revoir. I have to say, I don't like this at all. But there it is. Whatever happened with the transobdicator, Margot witnessed it in all its ludicrous glory. 
she understands it any more than we do. But you can bet your bottom dollar she'll report it to her spymaster. Maybe Margot swallowed your explanation for Perhaps. what she saw. I hope so. Whatever the case, they haven't brought us here for nothing. If I don't produce results that satisfy them, and they suspect I'm holding back, then they may start twisting not my arm, but yours. Hey, I'm pretty tough. I imagine they're prepared to take extreme measures, if necessary. And I won't see you hurt. Should the worst come to You're worst. You're going to give away your secrets? If I have to. To save you. There must be another way out of this. At the moment, I can't think of one. Those two chaps are brought over in the motorboat. Couldn't help noticing that one of them was toting a machine gun. Not sure we'd stand much chance of overpowering them. I'm not Bulldog Drummond. I'd suggest we throw caution to the wind and try swimming for it. But I'm a pretty hopeless swimmer. School bully ducked my head under when I was seven and I never really recovered. I could give you some lessons. Yes, I dare say you could. You've uh, been a marvellous teacher in, uh, in other respects. Well, you've been an excellent pupil. Looking forward to continuing my education. That is, if we can first find a way out of this bind. By this time next week, I'm going to have to rig up something sufficiently impressive to keep us both safe, if only temporarily. Paul, you weren't in the barn and you weren't here either. And then you finally showed up. It, it must have been five, ten minutes. You, you were nowhere. That I sent myself through time as well as space. That's... That's ludicrous. Then how did I get here in 1934? I really have no answer to that question. I've gone over every aspect hey, of that the... Zantinian bulb, right? I did indeed. Could have done with two. One for each device, but can't complain. These things are as rare as an honest politician and horribly expensive. Last only about half as long as standard bulbs before they blow. Even consider taking a trip to Tunguska to see if I Tunguska? could... Tunguska? Yes, I believe that's the name of the region the meteor or comet or whatever it was came down in. Somewhere out in the wilds of Siberia. The only place they've ever found Zontinium in a fragment of rock from the sky. Hence the rarity and expense. And you used one of those bulbs mm, before? It blew just after I made that transmission you claim to have received in the 21st... Ever... You're not suggesting. Damn right I'm suggesting. This is Tunguska we're talking, mister. The stuff of myth and legend. Normal rules don't apply. I'm guessing your gizmo creates some kind of weird temporal field. But only when you use the Zontinium bulb to make up that grid the of light. The transopticator does indeed generate an electromagnetic field. Temporal? Mm. Too crazy. Well, huh? at this point I'm prepared to accept just about anything that might hint at a way forward even if the rationale eludes my grasp. We went to work. I helped as best I could. We got the two transopticators together in the barn. Ava, I'm going to have to ask you to take a very big risk. Do you trust me? I trust you. Very well. First time I've tried this. I've split the bean from the zontinium bulb so that it can be used by both transopticators simultaneously, scanning each of us in turn and producing a cumulative cross-transmission. Signal strength should increase exponentially, although, of course, that could send everything up into a big puff of smoke. Wouldn't dare hazard a guess as to the result. Entirely unpredictable. But, as mad professors frequently say in science fiction stories that I do so crazy, it just might, might work. work. Go for it.
Margot! Damn! This time she's brought along her friend with the artillery. Paul, open up! I knew I was back in George's apartment lying on the floor beside that gizmo. Okay, Maria, I know what you're gonna say. Hallucination, right? Well, whatever. That's an amazingly romantic story. But not the kind of story you could believe? Ava, I believe that it's what you believe. I woke up wearing 1930s clothes, Maria. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, that stuff can be bought. Okay, then look at my arm. See that big red scar? Ugh, nasty. Yeah. A machine gun bullet did that. Ava. And the worst of it is, is I don't even know if Paul got away. Ava, please listen to yourself. This isn't healthy. There's only this one. This one? The Ravenstock Transopticator. I'm told it's the only one left. Don't you see, Maria? If Paul's going to make it, he has to come through this one. I don't know how long it's going to take, but he has to come through here. Ava, please. You're starting to scare me. Please, please talk to someone. You mean a healthcare professional? Someone. Can help. Help how? Uh, by trying to convince me that this was all in my head. Please, Ava, take my advice. Talk to someone. Okay, the cemetery. Remember the cemetery? Cemetery? Hampstead. We went looking for the grave. Hampstead Cemetery. We found it. Don't you remember? Ava, I'm sorry, but I really don't know what you're talking about. Sure, it wasn't just a really vivid dream. Maybe you need to get a good night's sleep. Maybe. Hey, look, Maria, I, I gotta go. Thanks for listening. Take care. You too, Ava. And please take my advice. How could I explain to Maria? She didn't remember because the world had changed, and so the grave wasn't there, and so we hadn't gone looking for it. But how come I remembered? I guess because I'd skipped right over the changes. Straight back here from 1934. And then there was the book. Instead of being about to climb that drain pipe, Paul was pictured with a woman wearing a dainty little hat, her face in shadow, Ava Delman, in a photo taken in 1934. And the words that went with the photo were different from before. Paul Ravenstock, 1907 to... British inventor, television pioneer. In 1920s was briefly assistant to John Logie Baird was last heard of working to perfect a television projection system in color and three dimensions, a project left unfinished for reasons unknown. And that was it. Paul Ravenstock had fallen off the map. I went there to see for myself. There was just one gravestone, Patricia Murray, 1877 to 1935. Now we've all had vivid dreams. <laughs> You wake up and you're convinced you're still in that world that feels so real. But the feeling fades, and pretty soon you're moving on with your life. But I couldn't move on. I couldn't let go of that dream. Because I knew it was more than a dream. I didn't care if people thought if I was crazy. don't mind me saying so, Ava, you're looking a little unwell. Is everything all right? Uh-huh. Tired as all. Well, take it easy and rest up. Oh, and guess what? I'm selling the collection. <sighs> To an American acquaintance. George, for a museum. oh my Frankly, god. It does break my heart, but at the risk of sounding like a Philistine, I really need the cash to help bail out a friend who, to cut a long story short, is in trouble with the tax man. Anyway, 
It will all need to be packed up and shipped across to the States. In fact, I was wondering, Ava, if you'd be able to help out would save the hassle of flying back. You're selling the entire collection? Including the Ravenstock Transopticator? That in particular, since it happens to be the item that sealed the deal. The star attraction. Okay. Oh, dear, Ava. Let me guess. You've fallen in love with it? <laughs> well, I'm sure someone could bosh together a pretty fair reproduction. Alright, not the genuine article, but the next best I thing. could offer you 20,000 pounds. Oh dear, pet, you really do have a bad, don't you? Could you get hold of that much? One way or another. Anyway, the question's academic. I'm afraid I've already been offered considerably more. Look, I'm really, really sorry, Ava, but the deal's a deal. I can't back out now. As I said, Do you know what happened to Paul Ravenstock? No idea. Far as I know, he melted away into obscurity in the mid-1930s. Abandoned his work for whatever reason. Why? Oh, nothing. Right. Ava, chat again soon, yeah? Bye, and take care. I couldn't let go. So what I did was, I hired myself a van, disassembled the Ravenstock transopticator, making a careful photo record of every stage, packed it up and took off with it. The rest of the collection I arranged to have packed up and shipped off to this buyer. Sooner or later, they'd find out the start traction was absent, but this would at least buy me some time. I rented a room on the other side of the city, kept the lowest of low profiles. All I worried about was having a steady supply of electricity. Using my photos as a guide, I reassembled the gizmo and got it up and running. Then I sat there in that bare little room in front of the grid of colored light and waited. Could be that sooner or later they'd track me down. Maybe George, being the compassionate guy that he is, would hold back for as long as he could. They'd all be thinking I'd lost my mind. Maybe I had, maybe I was crazy. Every day and every night I sat there waiting, slowly running out of money. And then it left an antique smell of hot metal, burning rubber and scorched dust. I switched off the gizmo, examining the damage. What chance of finding a replacement? I started looking online for zontanium bulbs. Someone in New York was selling one for $80,000. Claimed it was the only one left in the world. Someone else said it was fake, a scam, and that there were none left at all. In desperation, I looked to see if there was someone in London who knew all about those vintage electronics and could tell me if that bulb on sale really was a fake if there was any chance at all of getting one from somewhere else. Anywhere. As for the money, well, I'd get it somehow. I had no idea how, but somehow. I found a few people and messaged them, explained the problem and attached a couple of photos. Only one got back to me. The writing style was old-fashioned and formal, more like a snail mail letter than an email. They might have what I needed, but it was very fragile, and I'd need to collect it. They were probably mistaken, and if by some miracle they did have a genuine zontinium bulb, they surely wouldn't part with it for peanuts. Anyhow, their shop was in Richmond-upon-Thames, a train ride away across the city. I made my way there and found it to be a gloomy little place down a side street, as plain and generic as a shop in a cartoon. Yes, what can I do for you? I emailed about a bulb for a 1930s TV projector. Oh, yes. I believe this is what you're looking for. Oh, excellent. 
Thank you. It certainly looks like it. My grandfather managed to find it among all the bits Amazing. and pieces. Thank you. In an old cardboard box that was falling apart. I wrapped it in newspaper and put it in this oh, newer thank box you. for that's, you. Thank you, that's very kind. So what do I owe you? Oh, he said there's really no need. It's such an old piece. <laughs> it is a zontinium bulb. Oh, yes. It said so on that old box I threw away. Would you like me to get it for you and show you? No, no. He did warn that it might not work after all this time. But he said he hopes it does. Said it was the very least he could do. I must confess to being a little puzzled by that last remark, but he's in his 90s. It took some persuasion, but I finally got her to accept the money. Not a lot of money, but all I could afford. Seemed a crazy way to conduct a business. But then the bulb was really old. It could be broken, or even a fake. I took the train back and, with fingers crossed and a tightness in my stomach, screwed the bulb into place. Only then did I notice the little label on the box. E. Betts Radio Repairs. Betts? I knew I'd heard that name somewhere before. Edward Betts, 1933 to 34. Safe in the arms of the Lord, baby. Oh my god! Well, now for the real test. I switched on the Ravenstock transopticator. The discs spun around, the valves glowed, the zontinium bulb shot out the beam of light, which all those mirrors and prisms magically bent into that beautiful colored grid. I went back to my waiting, waiting and hoping, day after day, wondering what I'd do if this bulb blew like the old one. I remembered Paul saying those bulbs had short lives, just like Paul himself. I sat there waiting, hoping, And then one day, I guess the hope just ran out, along with the money. And I saw myself from the outside, and what I saw wasn't healthy. I started crying, and I mean crying, like a baby. And when at last I was all cried out, I sat there, numb, hunched up against that wall in that drab little room, until exhaustion finally overcame me. Eva. Eva. Paul! You... You... Oh. You... You were, you were sitting there... Asleep. Paul! Paul! Your leg! It's... It's bleeding! <laughs> Parting gift from Margot. Machine gun bullet. Just... Uh, just the one. I think. <laughs> How about you, Ava? Are you alright? Well, there's another Zontinium bulb gone. Oh, just as well. That means Margot or anyone else won't be able to fall. Paul, we've got to get you us. to a hospital. And where exactly are we? My, I ask. Welcome to the 21st century, Mr. Ravenstock. In Rescuing Ravenstock, Kenzie Kreitzer played Ava Delman. Christopher McDougall played Paul Ravenstock. Marissa Landy played Maria and Diana. Alice Wallace played Margot. 
Henry Lyon played Roger Pilbeam, and Roger King played George. Additional roles were played by Evan Raymond, Madeline Raymond, and other members of the cast. Story and script by Richard Raymond. Music by Svenska Spindlar. Ravenstock theme by Paul Dryland. With special thanks to Eugene Coyne for use of the track, Birdsong. Rescuing Ravenstock was produced, directed, and edited by Paul Dryland and Richard Raymond. <laughs>